Rap, would you lead us, please? Let's pray. Holy Father, it's it's very joyful and a blessing to us uh, each day as we are awake and see a beautiful day, see your creation, see your blessings. Thankful for the families that you give us and our children and grandchildren. Thankful for the many opportunities that you give us as we go into each day. We pray that uh, we will always be aware of your blessings as we go into this week. Strengthen us where we're weak and uh, we know that you are always with us. We know that you care for us and we know that you uh, are especially mindful of these that have been mentioned and uh, George and Betsy and, and uh, Jim. Thank you for caring for them. We know that uh, you will see what is best in, in each of their situations. And Father, uh, we're just thankful for this, uh, this congregation, for the leaders, for the people who make uh, just everything a pleasing sight and an aroma that uh, rises up to, uh, to you. Thankful for the teachers in this very room here and uh, uh, thankful for their strength and their ability to pass along to us. Thankful for John Hicks, to uh, he comes to uh, bless us with his uh, knowledge and ability. Father, we do love you. Bless us as we go into this week. Thankful for uh, just everything that is ours because of you and through your son that we ask us. Amen. We'll likely not have time at the end for me to remind you. Uh, let's see. Did you, you must have gotten them. Okay. Leland will have handouts for next week. We will do a reading from Justin Martyr next week, and so be sure and get those handouts from Lee. You should have one sheet back in front. I got more here for you. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to spend some time with you. I'm going to erase this if that's okay. Oh, yeah, please. First of all, I'm certainly not an expert on the state of the canon in the second century. That is not my, not a field I... Uh, uh, did any teaching in other than some general teaching, but I'm happy to introduce some ideas and become a resource of some sort here for you. What I want to do is, is um, you know, when you give a handout, everybody starts reading it, and that's okay. <laughs> Go ahead and read it. <laughs> I'm all right with that. Um, but what I want to do is um, take about um, some a few minutes up here up front to just lay out a picture and then uh, spend some time talking about how the out, how what I've given you fits into that picture. And then we'll have some time for questions and discussion. Uh, so hopefully we'll have 
uh, 10, 15 minutes at the end, just to kind of see where you want to go with this. Uh, if there's anything you want to ask about particularly or you want to offer your own comment on, that'll be great. Look forward to seeing, seeing that. Uh, I thought I saw people looking at me. Okay. Uh, so let me give you a big picture, first of all. Uh, this is just a big conceptual kind of picture. And um, we have, of course, the beginning of Christianity in an event. Whatever the nature of that event is. We call it the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Jesus event, the Christ event. But something happened. And out of that event, a community arose. This community grew out of that event by whatever means that happened. And what we get a sense of in these, um, um, even in the early documents that we have, is that there is, within that community, a kind of centering reality. There is a sense of, of the event. And the event is what drowns this community. It's what shapes this community. It's what gives continuity to this community. And I'm going to call that the canon. Because Paul calls it that. Now, when, he used, when, when we talk about canon here, we're not talking about written documents. We're talking about a, a centering reality, confession of faith about that event that norms in some way or grounds in some way, or unites in some way, this diverse community. Because this community is diverse. It's geographically diverse. It's ethnically diverse. It's, uh, it has diversity of understanding of practices. Uh, all we have to talk about is eating of meats, right, and that sort of thing. Jewish practices and Gentile culture. All, I mean, we have a big discussion about that in Acts 15, right? So there's a diverse reality here of this community, but there is a canon within it. There is something that norms it or gives it its unity or everyone rallies around in some way or fashion. Now that canon is oral. It's oral at this point. And that oral canon continues. Even into the second century, that oral canon is present, and it's known in the second century as the rule of faith, or the canon of truth. And it's a, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment, but it's oral in character, right? it's not written. Some people write it down, but everybody who writes it down, it's not exactly, it's not the same words, it's the same ideas but not always the same words. In other words, this is not a fixed, um, written, official statement of some kind. It is rather the consciousness of the church that is exhibited in various communities. Now, as this community develops and grows and confesses this oral reality, what we know, of course, from the from what documents we have, is that this community begins to write. It begins to write. 
Uh, depending on who you talk to, either First Thessalonians or Galatians is the first writing that we still have. There may have been others before that, but of what we still have, Galatians and First Thessalonians. So of those writings that we still have, what we, we have something in the early 50s, we, we begin to see um, some writings come into being that we still possess. And as uh, you know, these, these writings develop, um, old, you, you, you get epistles, uh, letters and gospels, um, you get the apocalypses, uh, apocalypse, Genre, you get narratives. I think there's another genre there. Uh, you get visions, like Shepherd of Hermits. It's a series of visions, right? But let's just let's keep it let's keep it at this because Shepherd of Hermits is kind of unique there. But you get narratives like the Martyrdom of Polycarp. You get all these letters, like first, second. This is more of a sermon. Second Clement is probably more of a sermon. So you kind of get homilies, sermons. Like Hebrews is probably a sermon. History. I'll put that in the category of narratives. Yeah, yeah. But history, yeah, that fits. That fits. So you get different kinds of genres appearing out of this community. This community is a, is a writing community, right? Uh, and it continues to write into the second century. So you have that, that list of apostolic fathers there, uh, of writings. Now, back to Diake is more like a, a church manual, right? Uh, so it's another kind of genre uh, itself. So what happens is you have all these writings and they're emerging from the 50s, let's say, all the way to the 200s. And so now that you have this diversity of writings and this multiplying, this community that's multiplying and growing and spreading across the Mediterranean world and out to the east as well, uh, you start getting questions about, okay, which, one, which of these writings can we trust? Which of these writings really help us? And that becomes the question of canon. Can these, do these writings, can they take on the status of canon? Can they take on the status of a norming measure? Which is what a canon is, right? A measuring stick, kind of a norming measure. measure. That, there is something about canon that already exists in the community. And we see it in the second century as a rule of faith, it's still there, and it has a norming capacity. So the question then becomes which documents, or if any documents, should have that kind of function in the community. And by the end of the second century, <coughs> by the end of the second century, we can, I think we can say with pretty, pretty um, significant certainty that 22 
books of what we now know as the New Testament have that function in the existing Christian churches across the world. Um, and by the middle of the third century, we have at least one writer who has 27 identified. And sometimes we say there's not an official list until 367 in Athanasius' Easter letter. And in one sense, that's true. There's not an official list. Official list, you might say. But there's a functional list already going on. And you know, one of the things you sometimes hear in popular culture is that Constantine decided what books belong in the New Testament. Well, that's just absolutely false. You know, there's nothing true about that. Where that comes from is August, uh, Constantine ordered 50 copies of the New Testament to be distributed to churches. He just ordered 50 copies. Something already existed, <laughs> and he just wanted copies. Right? Um, and we have a couple of manuscripts, that, well, at least one in one manuscript, that people think, Get out of here, straight ham. <laughs> we don't want you in here. Oh, no, and Lauren, too. All right, we're in line. Now, now I have to, uh, we, got, we got room over here. We got room over here. Now, you see, I don't know why they call me in to teach the second century canon. There's the, there's the gut New Testament guy right there. And then Lauren does stuff with hermeneutics and scripture, so. All right, well, anyway. All right. I'm glad I have the opportunity to set my colleagues straight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, welcome. Glad y'all here. Um, so, this is the big picture. All right. The big picture. Now, let's, um, let me, I got a couple of handouts here. That's spelling error. Yeah, it probably is. <laughs> it wouldn't bother me. Uh, so, with that big picture, one of the, let me start with, with Galatians 6, right at the top there. And really, I should have included verse 14. I don't know why I didn't include verse 14 when I, when I put this together, but I thought I was including verse 14. I'm 60 years old, so that's part of it, right? I mean, that's part of it. So, verse 14 should be in there, where Paul says that, uh, you know, I boast in the cross of Christ. And circumcision, uncircumcision don't matter. But a new creation is everything. As for those who follow this canon, canon, canoni, um, here, um, this canon. See, there's, a, there's an operating canon. For Paul, there's already an operating canon. It's not written down necessarily, because if Galatians is his first letter, question mark, he hasn't written anything down yet, right, that we still have. But he still has a functioning canon. There's something that norms the community. Right? Something, we got room? We got a chair right here or back up here? Um, there's something that norms the community. Now, that's oral, though. It's oral. It's not written down. And what it, and its focus must be something um, what we might call Christological, Christocentric. It's about the cross of Christ. Maybe it related to the specific the event, whatever this event is that 
that this is what the church confesses and it norms. And so there's something that no other gospel, right? What he says in Galatians 1. If somebody comes to you with a, another gospel, a different kind of gospel. So there's already a criterion in Paul's mind between a healthy gospel and a different gospel. So that canon is already functioning for Paul, but it's not written. It's oral. It's the preaching of the church. Or, as we come to it in the second century, it's known as the rule of faith. And I'll give you, I'll give you one example here of the rule of faith. And this is, he says, uh, this is from Irenaeus. Um, oh, they'll just got the apostolic fathers up there. Irenaeus, who was martyred in 2002, in fact, he was elected bishop to replace the bishop who was martyred before him. Anybody want that yet? <laughs> you know, I mean, so, uh, you know, he's a leader in this southern France area, Gaul. Um, and what he's concerned about is uh, a maintenance of a faithful community against not only the persecution of the church, but against the alternative groups like the Gnostics. But this is his brief summary coming from apostolic preaching. Uh, I don't want to take time to read all that. You can read it for yourself. But notice it does have this, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, and I believe in the Spirit. It has that triune character to it. In other words, it's about, and it's about what God has done, right? It's about, what, about who God is and what God has done. And that is the norm. And this is called the canon of truth. Now, he's not the only one who does this. We have examples of this in all sorts of places. Tertullian in North Africa, uh, Clement of Alexandria in Egypt, Origen in Egypt. Uh, we have, I think, um, shorter versions of it in Justin Martyr. We have really shorter versions of it in Ignatius. And I think we even have shorter versions of it or versions of it in the New Testament documents themselves. Like a 1 Corinthians 15, right? What is of first importance? Christ died for our sins. He was buried, he was raised, and he appeared, right? Or a summary like in 1 Timothy 3.16, you know, uh, that this is the great mystery revealed in the flesh, right? Um, or the summary of Peter's uh, homily, I guess, with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. We get, a, we get the story of Jesus, of God who sent Israel and sent Jesus, and the Spirit is poured out. We get the, get the triune story there. So in different places, even in the New Testament documents themselves, even in these early documents, you have reflections of this. It's never fixed. This rule of faith is never kind of creedally fixed. It, doesn't, it never says, okay, this is it. This is the way we're going to say it. Um, no, it's fluid. It's oral. But it is diverse geographically and chronologically. It reflects kind of the oral canon of the church. Right? So as we see these documents in the second century uh, begin to quote other documents or allude <coughs> to other documents or think about other documents, 
Um, you know, we see later, later documents like Ignatius, um, what, the Barnabas, the Epistle of Barnabas, um, even the Didache, you can argue, is based on Matthew, at least some people think it is. Uh, first Clement, of course, refers to Paul's, uh, yeah, First Clement refers to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, to his letters to the Corinthians. And so as you see these other writers uh, referring back all the way through the second century, now we've got the question of what's going on here. Right. So by the end of the second century, following the outline, and I'm going to maybe go another ten more minutes, and then we're just going to open it up to what you want to talk about. At the end of the second century, there's there's this thing called the Muratorian um, canon. Muratorian canon. Uh, some there have been a few scholars who want to who want to put it later, like in the fourth century. Um, but there's still a consensus that it's second century. It has a list, and its list includes four <coughs> Gospels, Acts, Paul's Epistles, Jude, First and Second John, Revelation. But it doesn't include First and Second Peter, Third John, James, and Hebrews. It also adds the Wisdom of Solomon, which is a uh, which is more about Old Testament canon issues in some ways. Um, it does say, okay, we, have, we also have these, you know, the Apocalypse of Peter. Eh, people are thinking about that one, but we have a lot of disagreement about that. And then it says, and, you know, the Shepherd of Hermas, but we don't read that in church. Now, when it says we don't read that in church, that tells you something, doesn't it? We, we make some kind of distinction. There are some books that we think are helpful and profitable, and they're useful, but we don't read them in church. Because uh, we read only the ones in church that we think function in some way to norm the faith, to give the faith. Uh, in Irenaeus, we see him quoting all the New Testament documents except Philemon, 2 Peter, 3 John, and Jude. Uh, Tertullian, who is in North Africa, Carthage, North Africa. Clement of Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt. You can see that at the end of the second century, we got basically 22 commonly held books that people are using in church, they're using in the community to norm the community, to appeal to them in some kind of authoritative way. In other words, it's a functioning canon. There's no kind of official list, of course. But the question is not what's an official list. The question is what's its function? In the second century, it's not about a list. It's about the function. It's about how it functions. What books are we using to help us understand what we confess? What we confess, we confess this oral tradition, this rule of faith. And these books are helping us understand that. And we do have, by the end of the second century, 22 books at least, that offer a kind of functional norming texts that help us understand what we confess. So, where did this come from? Why do we need books? You know, why don't we just keep the oral tradition going? Why, why do we even uh, think about uh, having a, a set of documents that 
are appended to Israel's scripture. When you read Justin Martyr, Justin's next week, right? When you read Justin Martyr, you notice that in the assembly, he's going to say, what we do is we read from the <laughs> memoirs of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, what we would call Old and New Testament. Unfortunately, Old Testament first appeared in the Bishop of Sardis, Melito, Bishop of Sardis. He's the first one to call the Hebrew Bible the Old Testament. Unfortunately thing to happen, it seems to me, but anyway. Um, so why, why have this kind of, okay, where are the books? Why, why even even have that impulse? Right. Well, look on the back side. Historical context, conceptualization. The early church was familiar with the idea of an inscripturated canon in some sense. Uh, these documents that come from the 50s and the first century, they're saying it is written. They're using the name scripture, right? They're, they're talking about scripture. Um, the pastorals, certainly coming from the first century, talk about you know all scripture, something written, right? So we're, that's already part of the, of the Jewish culture. What is written is important, <coughs> right? So it's not altogether surprising that if the church conceived of itself as the renewal of Israel, that there might be new texts that would function alongside. I don't see that as a problematic conception, right? especially since the idea of canon itself is still being discussed among Jewish uh, leaders of the time. Functional use. Early documents were read in Christian assemblies. You know, Paul says, yeah, when you get done reading this, I want you to read this letter to the Laodiceans and read the letter I wrote to the Laodiceans to Colossae. Revelation 1, verse 3, uses a word about read aloud. <coughs> read aloud. It's with the public reading. Um, to publicly read is not just about... Um, uh, we want to hear from the missionary. It's also about a norming of the community. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 7 through 11, we can look at that in more detail if you like, but basically he says, I, I'm, I'm given authority. I was, the Lord gave me authority to build you up. And whether I'm, in, whether I'm with you in person or in my letters, I'm doing my job. The letters had an authoritative function when the from the moment they were read the first time. Seems to me there's something inherent about what Paul's, Paul's self-conception there. Uh, recognition, 2 Peter. However we date 2 Peter, um, whatever, whatever conclusion we come to is that clearly, here's an early letter that regards Paul's letters as scripture. So there's already an early inclusion yeah, on the part of some. And then the need. Because the need is going to arise. Because now in the second century, you see, you start getting other writings. You get Gnostic Gospels. You get other narratives. Um, you get First Clement. You know? And Ignatius, Ignatius, why didn't Ignatius' letters ever get into the canon, you might say? You know? So what, what kind of decision process was going on? There's a need 
because of the multiplicity of writings, there's a need to say, well, wait a minute now. That's good, but these are the ones that norm. And then um, there are diverse understandings of the faith as well. Even within the New Testament, what we call the New Testament. There are diverse understandings of the faith. Think about First John, Docetus, those who believe Jesus came in the flesh and those who said, no, no, it wasn't real flesh. Or uh, those that Paul talks about having another gospel. Um, so there's already diversity within the community uh, that needs norming. Right? And there's already criteria at functioning within those diverse, within those communities. So how did they decide? Well, you know, that's a tough question. Because we don't really know when somebody sat down and said, okay, here's what we're, you know, here's the reason. Nobody really ever does that, right? Uh, you get a little bit of it maybe when Irenaeus is talking about the four Gospels over against the Gnostic Gospels, and he gives some arguments, some symbolic arguments as well as others. Um, so what we're going on is kind of inferring from the process. <coughs> inferring from the process. And, from, and I think the three I have here are pretty generally representative. You know, Josh can comment a line if you want about that. So one of the first functional criteria was apostolic origin. It had to have sufficient age. It wasn't just about being written by an apostle, although sometimes that is part of it. It had to have sufficient age. That is, if it came from the second century, then yeah, of course not. You know, we're not we're not buying that one. Um, so it had to go back to the roots in some way. It had to go back to the roots of this early community rather than the later community. Apostolic congruency. Was the document coherent with the rule of faith that's confessed among the churches? In other words, you bring a document like the Gospel of Thomas, which was known by the early church, and the early church rejected it. Why? Because they saw things in it that they thought didn't, were not congruent with the rule of faith. And as a gospel, it didn't tell the gospel. Think about that. The Gospel of Thomas doesn't tell the gospel. It has nothing about the passion narrative of Jesus Christ, right? At least that part of the gospel. That's not the whole of the gospel, of course, but uh, I think that's one of the reasons it would be rejected. Um, congruency. You know, you bring a document into the community, and the community has been confessing this faith for for decades, and you bring a document in that says, "Well, you know, your faith's wrong," and they're going. We're not going to listen to that document. Because we know what the faith is. We've been confessing it for a long time. Are the use in apostolic churches? In other words, was this document consistently and widely used among the churches from the earliest times? Yeah, okay. So those three criteria become kind of the functional criteria by which the church, you know, recognizes. Ah, uh, yeah, we've been using this first letter Paul wrote to Corinth. We've been using that one a long time. That goes back a long ways. 
those four Gospels, we've been using those a long time. You know, that functional kind of criteria. So I think that's how we get to the end of the second century and we have these 22 books. The disputed books probably reflect, one, maybe they're not, they're not as well known. Maybe they're a little later. Uh, maybe they don't really contain explicit word about the gospel. For example, take, take James. James only mentions Jesus twice. Neither one in a really theological sense, well, eh, sort of, but not as part of his major argument. So maybe, yeah, I don't know. I'm, you know, maybe. So you can see maybe there was some hesitation about some of these books. But ultimately, uh, through the next 200 years, the church decided, yeah, these are the 27. Right. Now, that was really quick. And it's a lot of information. But let me just open it up and give you opportunity. Yeah. Two questions. One is, uh, from the uh, oral traditions, the oral gospel, mm -hmm. uh, did the... Uh, uh, the Apostles' Creed evolved from that, and when did yeah. it surface? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the Apostles' Creed developed differently. Um, this was kind of a, a narrative, a fuller narrative. What we call the Apostles' Creed, I think, has a different trajectory. It, it more or less comes back in some form or fashion, but it's more a baptismal confession. In other words, it goes back to like uh, Hippolytus in, in Rome in the second, in the third century has this baptismal liturgy. It says, do you believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth? Yes, I believe. No. Do you believe in Jesus, son of God? Yes. No. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Yes. No. You know, and that, that, that triune baptismal confession is very ancient. Uh, but the Apostles' Creed is really something that only appears in the West. And the form that we have it in now is really about 8th century. But it goes back to an old Roman creed, an old Roman baptismal confession, about somewhere around the 4th century. So it's later than the rule of faith, actually, the, what, the form in which we have it. Second question. Uh, over the years, I've read more question about Revelation than any other book. Yeah. And that's and, really weird. And and the, the question of the parts of Revelation. It seems yeah. to be possibility of three different documents. Well, right. you know, there's always, uh, there can always be a question about the literary unity of a document, right? Second Corinthians, you know, people question the literary unity of Second Corinthians. Uh, <coughs> or, or even the ending of Rome. Now, Revelation, the Apocalypse, one of the interesting things about the Apocalypse is that, aside from the four Gospels, it's probably the most well-attested uh, functional use in the second century church. Uh, it is more widely mentioned than any other book in the New Testament except the four Gospels. So every one of these, uh, like, you know, Tertullian, Origen, Clement, uh, you, you see Irenaeus, of course, using it. Uh, it goes back to a fragment, the Pathias fragment, that mentions Revelation. Right? 
Um, so it's the, one of the most well-attested books. In other words, there doesn't seem to be any question about it in the second century. But in the third century, you start getting questions. And the question in the third century is, what about this thousand-year stuff? You know, that's where the question starts coming in. And maybe even kind of the suspicion of all kinds of apocalypses. Just the very genre itself raises questions for some people. But in the second century, there's no evidence of any questioning of the apocalypse or of any dividing. Of course, we don't have a lot of details about it, you know, so. Uh, but Irenaeus, by the end of the second century, he's quoting from all different kinds of parts of Revelation. Um, and then you see in some of the apologists, you know, hints at it as well. So, yeah, I think it's probably as well attested book as any in the second century. Premise of this question may be uh, wrong, but it seems as though uh, now, two thousand years later or so, the the Protestant tradition has taken a higher view of, of this twenty seven book canon to the exclusion of others than the Catholic mm -hmm. view has. Uh, what if that's true? What accounts for that? In your yeah, when you're talking about the Catholic or the Greek Orthodox tradition. There's no disagreement about the 27 books. The disagreement is about the books in between what we call Old Testament and New Testament, the Apocrypha. So which of these Apocrypha books, like Maccabees and Tobit and so on, that, that's the difference between Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox and Protestant. Is the, and the question there uh, is really about what was the Jewish canon? You know, what, was the, what, what Jewish canon did the church inherit? Um, and Protestants have tended to say, you know, maybe, maybe we ought to go with the Jewish canon. Because when um, the received Jewish canon that emerged, say, in the 4th, 5th century, with some stability, um, is what the Protestants say, okay, that's what we'll go with. But uh, Roman Catholics, because of the church's use of certain um, you know, books like Tobit and Maccabees and Jubilee, uh, Maccabees, yeah, uh, they think there's much more value uh, than the Protestants. So that's a debate about the Apocrypha. Uh, but in terms of like thinking about Ignatius, I mean, yeah. it seems as though the Catholic tradition has, has uh, put, probably put, definitely put more attention on that uh, in that period of time than Protestants have. As a part of the canon or no, as a no, historical so Just as a historical canon. Yeah, yeah, sure, just yeah. a tradition yeah, that sure. uh, we've sort of shunned. Yeah. Maybe shunned not the right word, yeah. but at least in popular church culture, Protestants have tended to focus more on the canon. Yeah. And, and, you know, part of that is you know, the way Ignatius can be used in a polemical way, one way or the other. You know? yeah, yeah. And uh, so the polemics get involved in that. But it seems to me, um, maybe, maybe this is kind of maybe what you're alluding to. You know, in Roman Catholicism, there's a higher value to tradition. Yeah. Yeah. And so the function of Ignatius within the tradition is more objective and received in Roman Catholic faith than it would be in Protestant. Because it was perceived as consistent enough with the uh, 
what you refer yeah. to as the rule of faith. Yeah. 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 Well, it certainly is consistent with the rule of faith. But the problem would be, um, but even Roman Catholics don't regard it as canon. Yeah, true. Yeah, right. yeah. But they do regard it as high value of tradition. Yeah. So in that sense, yeah, there would be a difference. And then some Protestants, you know, kind of hesitant to go with what Ignatius says about a lot of things. You know, like uh, you can only have an agape feast or a baptism if the bishop's present. You know. Um, or uh, the whole mono-episcopate yeah. process and where that originated and what, it, what are its roots and what we call the New Testament. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's things to talk about there for sure. And there are differences. <coughs> Got a few more minutes. Anybody else have a comment or a question? Yeah. You said that it was unfortunate that uh, they had called it the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why is it? Well, uh, I, think, I think that's a function of the, of the shift in the second century. In the first century, the church operated out of a strong sense of, of a continuity with Israel and the use of Israel's scriptures. I mean, for the early church, their Bible before any other New Testament documents were written, right? Before any New Testament document, their Bible was the old, was what we call the Old Testament. It was their Bible. It wasn't old. It was the Bible. And so I think what happened in the second century is that as the church began to be, um, to operate more in a Gentile world and not in a Jewish context or a sense of continuity with the Jewish context, in that Gentile world, uh, we began to use language and talk about Israel and Jews in a way that we kind of, <clears throat> we wanted to make sure we were distinct. We wanted to make sure we were, and so to call it the Old Testament is, is, to, is to say, no, that, that's all, we're, we got something new here. You know, something like that, you know, maybe. Yeah. So knowing something about how the canon was formed, mm -hmm. how how do you see the canon functioning now for the church? Like, how might this inform us today? Oh uh, well, yeah. I think uh, it, it it becomes the narrative world in which we hear our faith and we understand our faith. In other words, it's our link to its origins. Other documents, you know, they reflect on the faith, they expound the faith, and they help us in that way. But these are the documents of our origins. And this is the initial narrative world of that confession of faith. And so I think in that sense, it still norms us in that sense. Yeah. Well, I think our time is up. We got people leaving. Just a quick one. Yeah. Uh, any of the particularly earlier apostolic fathers were any of their writings used extensively in the church and read that might have led them to be considered for the canon? I don't know that anyone, you could say any of them were extensively used as being read in the church. Some people um, read the Shepherd of Hermas in that way. But minor, seems to me. So, in terms of consistency and generality, no. 
So dating as well as lack of use would have eliminated most of those from the written count. Yeah, I think so. And even Ignatius himself says, hey, I'm not Peter or Paul. Let's make a distinction here. I'm not Peter or Paul. So I think there's kind of an inherent recognition uh, of a distinction. Thank, Thank you. you very much. I appreciate it. Thank all of you for your